Hello and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. Now, it's the final episode of the Event Lab podcast for 2018, and we've got a bumper episode lined up. Gary Crane and Jerry O'Brien, the directors of Ambition Creative, join me to talk about creating a better visual identity for your event. Clients are seeing the value in telling a story, but actually telling a story face to face, the way their audience actually is. Then, Bruce Daisley, the Vice President of Twitter for Europe, the Middle East and Africa, is breaking down what it takes to improve work culture and make people happier in their work. There's a burnout epidemic going on and people are telling us we need to work till we're 70. Work is feeling more unsustainable than ever before. But first, the News Digest team are here for a look back over 2018 and all the triumphs and tribulations that it held for the events industry. So it's over to Ed and the team. I'm joined by Richard Groves from Smart and by Charlotte Gentry from Pure. Hello. Hello. Hello, Red. Hi, how are you doing? Very good, you very good. very well after your holiday, which I'm sure is well-deserved. It was the uh, first holiday in a while. It was lovely. I feel very refreshed indeed. Good. Yeah. And it's the last News Digest of 2018. How it sad. Is indeed. Gosh, but we have, 29, we have 2019 to look forward to. We have 2019 to look forward to. But what I thought we would do today is just have, uh, I guess, have a, have a look back at 2018. What's happened We've discussed a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, we have. A lot of topics. A lot of, a lot of, yes, a lot of things have gone through um, the, the mindsets that we've had. And I think um, a lot of it has come down to venues, event management companies, all being externally influenced by either social media or people trying to impart their feelings on top of them. I think there's a lot of that going on. You know, it's been a quite kind of controversial year generally, hasn't it, in the world? Love a bit of controversy. Love it. It's been a year of Donald Trump. We 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 uh we talked about whether the events world should embrace embrace Donald Trump, and then we had at the same time a lot of uh, incidents of kind of uproar at venues um, for playing host to kind of allegedly um, allegedly unsavoury or, or controversial organisations. We had the Design Museum. Remember, we spoke mm-hmm. about the Design Museum hosted a global arms arms company at the same time as a, an exhibition on art for political protest. Artists kind of removed their work in protest. We had Natural History Museum was savaged, wasn't it, by Owen Jones in The Guardian for hosting the uh, the event at the Saudi embassy. Got one conclusion, it's a tricky world out there for, uh, for, for venues and event suppliers to navigate, a tricky kind of moral, moral world. Well, I'm going to be a bit controversial and say I think that there are potentially too many people out there with too much time on their hands um, because I think that, you know, is this... Um, the information is more readily available due to the impact that social media is having and everybody tweeting and um, where they are and, and the kind of event that they're at, etc. And, you know, 20 years ago, would anyone have known that this event is happening in the National History Museum or um, something's happening in the Design Museum? Probably not. And so you're always going to find somebody. It's like trying to actually produce an event for a group of people. You're never going to get away without somebody whinging about something or other. And now people are just desperate to have a good whinge and a moan about people that shouldn't be able to host an event in a particular sector. Well, I don't know whether that's strictly fair or true. I think people think they've got more of a voice because they have a voice, because they can send something out and it can be retweeted and, and millions of people might see it. Whereas before, they, they could have had a bit of a grump about someone they considered it unsavory coming into a venue. You know, Farnborough Air Show has been going on as long as I've been doing catering for decades. And, and they always have events in museums in central London during Farnborough Week. No one picks a fight with it historically. But now one person gets the idea that it might be going on and off they run and they can tell the whole world within seconds that it's going on. I think that sort of empowerment isn't particularly helpful. It's not helpful at all. And, you know, there's no sort of there's no discussion about actually the interesting content that might actually be being discussed at that event. It's more about whether or not it's the appropriate forum or the appropriate um, industry that's actually allowed to to host these types of events, whereas actually the content might be quite educational and quite interesting. At the end of the day, it's a difficult world out there, isn't it? Everyone, everyone needs to... It's a difficult commercial environment. You, yeah, you these events have to be held somewhere and they pro- people might be happier if they're held in commercial venues, purely commercial venues like hotels or conference centres. But it's just because they seem to be held in public buildings that people feel they have an ownership of, like a museum or an art Mm. gallery, 
that is still not valid on criticising that because otherwise who is going to be picking up the running costs of that venue if they're not catering for events? Absolutely. Well, I imagine there will be plenty more of it to come in 2019, <laughs> free speech versus, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. I imagine there'll be plenty more t- touch points for us to discuss <laughs> next yeah. year. Uh, big year, obviously, pace of change is strong in, in events as so many areas, kind of digital, uh, you know, digital progression and, you know, things, things kind of move quickly. You had a big rise of influencer marketing uh, in the events world, uh, the piece uh I think I saw it in the Atlantic, uh, which was about how Instagram influencers are driving luxury hotels crazy as they figure out how best to engage with a new online influencers, changing the way that brands market themselves in the events industry and elsewhere. Do you do any influencer marketing, Richard? No, but I think what is interesting is this disruptor zone. Um, it's some of our suppliers uh, are new into the business, and they're now beginning to mature a little bit over the last two or three years after coming in and, and changing, particularly staffing um, and, and people booking themselves online and yep, almost a sort of Uber of version at, at, at Sift of you mark the staff and they mark you, and then you can pick the good ones. Um, and I think it's it's the market is becoming more mature in in taking on um, disruptors and social influencers and you know, we are becoming more widespread in our view and it because we have been particularly myopic i think in the last you know up until five years ago about this is how events are done this is where you do them and the clients following that advice and, and not trying to change the rules too much what's great for us event profs we, um, is that people are being more aware now of what they can do and want to do something different and want to slightly antagonise or push the boundaries. I think the whole impact of uh, digital marketing has has made quite a significant difference and even just um, from actually registering for events as well um, and, you know, how, how people are beginning to understand um, as far as social media goes what events need to feel like and actually how, how to move them forward. So I think that's been quite a challenge because um i mean a lot of our clients are actually quite um traditional in 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 their in in their and conservative in in the way in their outlook um and social media is changing changing the way that that works now um and influencers you know on, on social media are beginning to make an inroad i think with how with how that's looking for the future we also on the tech side had a couple of Big tech players moving broadly into the space. We've got EasyJet looking to launch a food deli- food delivery service <laughs> we discussed. We've got Airbnb moving quite kind of firmly into experiences. Is this going to continue? I think it probably has to. I think, you know, these big, big brands are invariably going to diversify because their offering needs to, um, to alter. Um, it doesn't mean that EasyJet's food's going to be any good, <laughs> necessarily. Um, and in the same way, I wouldn't trust um, Airbnb to um, deliver a particularly exciting experience either. But, I mean, there are always going to be these big brands that are going to endeavour to diversify in the same way that advertising agencies, have all, a lot of them have produced live events agencies. It's not what ad agencies ever set out to do. But they are now, rather than subcontracting their events out to events agencies, they've actually created their own in-house events agencies. Um, and do you think that will continue? Yes, I do. Um, you know, I think is I think it might be um, JWT who actually what their live agency actually won quite a lot of awards um, within the industry, and I think that they will continue to grow that market because their clients are big brands, mm. and therefore they can keep it all under one roof. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, you know, if they've got and they've got the creatives internally to do a lot of the creative content for for those, so it doesn't surprise me that that's what's mm. happened. One thing that's come up uh, a lot in 2018, but a good thing is sustainability seems to have been regularly in the news. Whether it's the crackdown on on plastic waste, even the prime minister, or at least the prime minister at the time of recording, recording this, <laughs> I think I think is she in the vote. I think she might have bigger fish to fry they're, they're, they're right they're now for us to whether, whether or not we're going to be using. They're voting as we speak. You mean she's not thinking about plastic straws? <laughs> she's not thinking straws about straws. Moment, I don't think it. at the moment. She might be clutching onto straws, but she's not. <laughs> plastic or otherwise. Farmers are clutching But yeah, brands, Weatherspoons, all bar one, Pizza Express, getting rid of plastic, plastic straws altogether. We've heard a bit about food waste. We spoke to one app, it's called Olio, bringing a revolutionary new approach to food waste. Uh, more events going, more big events going paperless. I've heard mm-hmm. of I've heard a few of those this year. Mm-hmm. 
Which is which results in the rise of the event app scenario and, you know, going a lot more digital to event to avoid the quantities of paper. I mean, we certainly within the um bracket that we work in, I mean law firms still produce endless reams of printed materials during their conferences where you sort of think, why do you have to do this? You don't have to do this anymore. Mm, this whole booklet of stuff. Yeah. There's one study recently because everyone wants everyone wants people engaging with the mm. event technology and the apps. And there was a there was an event recently and there was paperless and it was, the, the engagement with the app went up something, I can't remember the number off, off the top of my head, but monumental mm. increase in engagement on the app. We never get everyone using it, of course, but going paperless had that great effect of getting everyone kind of plugged in, which is what... Yeah, you know, totally. The organizer want. Do clients do clients care that much? Does it is it is it they, are things really really not progressing? When it comes to we, I think it's it's down to the production companies and and caterers particularly to lead this. And I had an interesting example. Um, we did a, a large event for a client at the British Museum, and we had the tasting, and we went through all the can, all the cocktails, and she was determined to have this black plastic straw in one of the cocktails because she thought it looked better than the um, would look better than the, than the paper ones we had. And our rule is we don't use any plastic straws anymore. But she insisted. And myself and my um, colleague looked at each other and said, how far do we push this? She keeps saying, no, I want the black plastic one. And we said, well, it's not our policy to use black plastic. And we come, came to an on-pass. And then who pulls rank on that mm. one, client or caterer? And in the end, we managed to find a black disposable one mm. that was, was biodegradable, luckily. Mm. But it, it came to a, almost a stand-up about it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think... Sustainability, everybody needs to have a policy and everybody wants to have a policy. But when it actually comes down to the crunch of the budget, I mean, certainly with a lot of the things that we do, which involves travel, which obviously has got, you know, you've got a um, a blueprint there for, you know, carbon monoxide footprint and all the rest of it. Are people going to really alter their entire travel manifesto to really reduce that carbon footprint if it's going to cost them you know, thousands of pounds more mm. to charter aircraft rather than everybody being on separate planes and, you know, mm. all the rest of it. I mean, that's a very big decision for a lot of companies to make and, 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 the, and the difference in the cost is really quite significant. Yeah. You can go to Swansea for a conference on a train or you can yeah. go to Dubai for a weekend. Can yeah. You, Richard, your clients prefer. Yeah. Mm. Not that there's nothing wrong with Swansea, obviously. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Swansea. We want to make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> we love Swansea. The kind of industry stuff. There was a we had the APPG uh, on events recently, which asked the question of whether the government was doing enough to support the sector. That was recently. What really kind of struck me about that, I don't know what, what you think is. There was then a whole load of chat about what the sector even is, and is it even possible to define it? And this kind of world of events and then there's conferences and there's mice and there's you know even weddings we we discussed recently that seemed to me kind of the crux of the whole thing when it was being discussed is how do you even define how do you define a sector in order to to really do something or for government to to, to do something about it yeah because there is uh, lots of arguments for lobbying on particular things and i remember lobbying on extending the um, amount of tax-free money you could spend on a christmas party for instance from 75 pounds to 150 and we did get a little coterie of event organizers that were doing a lot of christmas parties together as a sort of little semi-autonomous body to do it um there aren't any big caterers organizations there's very few event management organizations that can support what you and i do charlotte it, 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 we're either just too disparate we're either too small owner operated and, and we would get together in little loose groups of like-minded people and get on and do it but there's nothing structural for government lobbying is there? no i mean there isn't really a defining body that actually is able to operate as a voice for what it is we're all trying to do and I think I think the other cha- I think the other challenge is, and this is something that I'm actually very much um, lobbying for, really, is that you know one has to be mindful of the fact that you know if when you're an industry in inverted commas leader, the people that are actually becoming the major influences now are not people like me, really. Um, it's the people that are coming through the ranks who are in their sort of late twenties who are actually going to become the future of the industry, and so it's actually giving those people more of a voice because their ideas and their thoughts are the progression of our industry anyway. Not necessarily, and actually, you know, I've started to have this conversation, in fact, with the likes of Evcon because there there are advisory boards out there, but they're stacked full of relatively conservative people of, um, you know, of an older age group within the sector who maybe dare I say it, slightly out of touch with actually what the what people within the wider section of people within our sector really want to see and experience now. Mm. You know, it's not about 
I mean, I was talking actually in, you know, um, you know the, the industry awards, as an example, is the day gone now of the formal sit-down black tie awards dinner? Should it not be something else that's actually much more engineered towards the younger people that are coming through the ranks that they aspire to want to be at? You know, sitting in a hotel ballroom, mm. is that not dead and buried now? You know, mm. we are the events industry. We are creative. We are meant to be an enormously creative um, sector. And it's not being necessarily represented particularly in accordance with where our brand sits, in my view. I mean, that's a much bigger question, but one that's interesting, mm. I think. But really interesting. Really interesting thought, actually, for, 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 for 2019. I think there's plenty of young people that love a black tie dinner as well. But I, 100%. I, but I, completely, I completely get what, you're, yeah. get what you're saying. And because we're in the middle of Christmas party season, it, it, it's forefront of my mind, but more and more people are not doing sit-down meals. Well, yeah, most of ours, people all do of not us like sitting down for yeah. two hours. Yeah. At the same place with the same person on your left and right. Yeah. One thing that did unite everyone, Hilton and Marriott <laughs> slashing their commission, <laughs> putting pressure on agencies. I don't know, that was a big thing beginning of the year. I haven't heard so much. I mean, obviously it's all kind of kind of happened. Is that, is that, is it, was there any discernible impact yet of that? You guys, you two can work? Not in my world. I mean, it it hasn't it doesn't necessarily affect us because we're very transparent. We charge fees anyway. But um, I think that it's a big problem for venue-finding agencies. And, you know, I was actually asked to go and talk a fair bit on panel discussions, venue panel discussions, of which, Ed, you were kind enough also to, in, to include me um, in one that you did. But, you know, it is... Um, it just means that the model has to change. Yeah. Um, and I asked the question again to a panel of corporates whether they would ever pay for venue finding because of this, you know, slashing commission. And the absolute resounding answer from this particular bunch of corporates was no. Mm. So then what do you do? Where do you go? You know, that's quite naive because actually they are paying for it because no. you know, they're not getting the, the best deal, net deal they possibly can because the commission is in there somewhere. Mm. Final thing I was to ask, and it seems to me it's been quite an active year in terms of acquisitions and mergers is it is that how it seems to you, you had bcd and grassroots in former ubm clive and first nys capital is there is there more activity than usual or is it i think it has and, and that that list is is quite exhaustive really when you think of one year when when you know confidence has not been huge potentially quite a lot with, going on with, with the b word going on so we, um and in the catering world as well there's been two or three sort of major movements of brands together um, and I, I, I think it's consolidation. I think it's the fact that people see there's an opportunity. It's probably a demographic thing as well. There's some older people who've run their businesses for a long time and think this is possibly the time to check out. I can't go through another wave of either very quiet times or you know wait for the good times to come round again. I think so. I think it's cyclical. I think it's it's, it's just happens to all run into each other. And once a couple of people do it and seem to get a good price, then it trips someone else on the same journey. I think there's, I mean, a few of those acquisitions have um, arisen due to the need for a logistics agency to um, uh, to merge with a creative one due to the whole experiential element of everybody wanting to be producing more and more unique experiences, which big, big agencies haven't really had the in-house resource to do. So I think that's been a part of it. Um, and yeah, you know, people are just... I think what Rich saying is absolutely 100% right. You know, people are looking at, you know, what might lie ahead. My personal view um, is actually that as much as, you know, we might be in for a bumpy ride next year, there's also a lot of opportunity out there at the same time. And um, in, in, in our particular case, we've actually chosen to really produce a very structured marketing plan for next year because there is an opportunity out there mm. at the same time. And the M&A activity gives everybody opportunities, mm. um, not only the people within the companies that are doing that, those mergers and acquisitions, but also the competition, mm. because there is always a fallout, and mm. particularly on catering lists and event management ro rosters and things. You know, if, if there's two companies are bought uh, or who are both on the list at one of the major mu museums, then one of them will going to have to come mm. off, which is an opportunity for somebody else. Mm. You almost said it, Richard. You almost said the, the B word. <laughs> I nearly did, which didn't I, I didn't. I didn't want to bring <laughs> up. Um, but I'm going to leave us on Brussels sprouts. I'm going to leave us on one final thought from you guys. Um, I want your favourite moment of 2018, and just a brief. We don't want to talk about Brexit, but what are your thoughts on the prospects for the world of events in 2019? 
Charlotte and I looking at each other. Who's going to go first? <laughs> <laughs> Lady first. <laughs> um, I think the highlight of um, 2018 for me is watching a member of my team in a high-vis fest, actually, on a skateboard, um, skating around the office on a skateboard. Um, Welcome to that. <laughs> <laughs> Just in a really happy mood that day. We haven't day, even talked about workplace culture, but it sounds like I you've, know, got, you've yeah. got it now. Woohoo! Um, so, um, um, but I think that um, as far as um, Brexit goes... Um, um, you know, I've been quite cautious um, with regards to what's going to happen next year overall. But in actual fact, we so far, no one has, um, we haven't seen a, a downturn of anybody cancelling anything. We've asked people to produce a plan A and a plan B. So, um, you know, that's um, something that we've been asked to consider, which otherwise mm -hmm. we wouldn't have been. However, um, I think that there is an opportunity for next year. And I think that people are so irritated by what's happened now because nobody's getting what they want essentially and the, the government basically is a complete mess that I think people are just thinking well stuff it let's just push keep on going. through yeah, I mean I think that's where people have got keep calm and, and carry on yeah, yeah exactly favourite <laughs> 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 moment Richard hey, um, um, one of them was I think my, my first um, podcast which I'd never done before and I thoroughly enjoyed that in the, in the summer thank you very much um, and the second one was we took a group of lovely agents um, to Ithkia just off um, Capri and the time when we went to a beautiful little hilltop restaurant um, and Angela Hartnett suddenly appeared from the kitchen and cooked for all 35 of us and we sat up and under the stars drinking limoncello and eating fantastic food Oh, that, was a, that was a highlight. Lots of lemon Why wasn't I invited, Richard? I'm terribly disappointed. Weren't you invited? <laughs> Weren't you invited? I wasn't invited. Really, it, I mean, awkward. It's, it's on a spend basis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Even more. Dear. Hint for, hint for Even more year. awkward. <laughs> and next year, thumbs up. I thumbs assume. up. Yeah, I think so. Um, we, we, we've got there's lots of tenders in the process at the moment with the, with the mergers and acquisitions. There are opportunities for us talking to new clients and and, and getting venue listings. And I'm, I'm I'm very bullish about it. I think whatever will happen, things will just continue. It might be a little dip every now and again, maybe at the end of March, but otherwise I think it's just mm. going to keep powering on. Onwards and upwards. Well, guys, it's been brilliant having you on News Digest in 2018. I can't wait for a few more, uh, well, many more in 2019 and beyond. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful Christmas. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been fabulous. It's been great. Happy Christmas. Now, next up, I'm sitting down with Jerry and Gary, who, with 20 years of branding and design experience behind them, are sitting down to share their thoughts on how you can improve your event's visual identity. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, maybe you could give our audience a little bit of kind of background about yourselves uh, and and Ambition Creative. Well, over to the man who kicked <laughs> things off, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, so Ambition's been running for ten years now. We're, we're yeah, ten years this this year, yeah. and um, started as a, uh, just me freelancing really. But no, we've been on a fairly sort of big journey since then. Uh, we ran a studio in Wokingham. Ran that. We were there for about six years. Mm -hmm. And recently moved to to my hometown Bracknell, and uh, we've got a small studio there. I guess you know, ten years is such a is, is a long time in any industry. Um, so I was really kind of wondering how, sort of how you'd seen the kind of work that clients want to kind of change over kind of over your operating time. I think budgets has probably been uh, the big thing that's changed a great deal over the years, especially where events are concerned. Um, we've been through lots of different changes in terms of work. Uh, as I said earlier, we cut our teeth in print. Um, and more and more clients move their budgets away from print towards digital, um, and that's kind of where we, our focus has been actually for the last ten years. A lot of that was budget driven. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so easy to make a change on a web page rather than to reprint ten thousand brochures or something. Also, just from a creative perspective, being uh, when you're when you're making something, knowing that it's not fixed, carved in stone. Um, it's quite a nice, comfortable place to be. When you've printed, some, when something's printed and it's out there, that's it, it's done. And you kind of move on to the next thing. But with digital, it's a bit more organic. It can grow, it can change. And if a mistake is made, it, you can rectify that. If, a, if the strategy isn't quite right, you can tweak it. But what we've found in the last, I'd probably say last two years, more and more clients are coming back 
to more of those conventional ways of communicating with their audience in the form of events. So one of the things that we've we did, you know, we, we were we were doing lots of you know, big event graphics. Um, it, well, at the at the top end, big event graphics. At the small end, pop up banners, you know, for sm- small booths. But we just found that those sort of dwindled. But there are more and more of those are coming back now. But in the form of event branding, whereby clients are seeing the um, the value in telling a story, but actually telling a story face to face, where their actually where their audience actually is, rather than to a, a, a almost like a virtual audience, an invisible audience. Do you think that kind of changes your creative approach to the, the designs? Not to the overall campaign, to the to, to the deliverable, obviously. Um, and they they we have a different kind of I wouldn't say process, but it's kind of once you've done that core element of understanding the problem and coming up with ideas from that point on it kind of changes radically in terms of right now we need to actually create something are we building a website or are we coming up with uh, the way that a stand might be constructed in a large exhibition but ultimately I think at the end of the day we're still building communications and messages and uh, visual identities for people to connect with I think I'd love, love to kind of find out more from you guys about kind of how you go about creating a strong visual identity and kind of what that process entails. From from our perspective, some of it was quite uh, instinctive, wasn't it, in terms of we uh, we didn't really have a, a formal education uh, in terms of um, degrees and, and all that type of thing. So we've kind of always uh, done a lot of stuff by instinct. One of the best skills a designer can have is empathy. Mm. Being able to put yourself in the mind of your audience, whether that's a 60 to 70 year old pensioner or a 18 to 20, you know, 20 year old, uh, you know, young, young, young adult, understanding what, what pushes their buttons, I think is a, is a, is a key thing. And um, yeah, there's a lot of discussion about that, that, you know, who we're talking to, what, tri- what are the triggers that are there, what are the problems that they're suffering? Why do they even need this product or service? I guess the, the better a company kind of understands its audience, the better it can approach you and exactly, better you can yeah. create a, so, an identity that will resonate. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, but what's interesting is when a client will come to the table thinking they know what they want or need, and you'll go through this whole conversation and these workshops where you, you really dig into the problem, and actually what gets kind of spat out at the end is something different completely. And when you put it forward to them with rationale around, well, this is actually what you're your audience is asking for and this is what you think they need but actually they're saying a different thing i think what companies or or people suffer from a lot is being too close to the product yeah also just keeping stakeholders happy key stakeholders you know one of the best strengths of any identity or brand is consistency again coming back to budget so much of the budget is spent on the hiring of the space the comms and, and the look of it is kind of, we kind of, we know we need to do that, but it, you know. It's an afterthought. Yeah, it's actually setting aside some budget for the identity and the, the just the, the message behind it, there's the story. Um, the, the most successful projects we've worked on with branding are where a client, we tend to have a, a, an ongoing relationship with them. They'll call us in and say, right, we've got this event. They may have chosen a, a venue or have a a, a square space for their stand mm. at an exhibition hall maybe but the conversation starts with this is what we are trying to say this is the overarching theme for this event or um, you know two day conference or whatever it may be and once we're in at that level we're able to craft not only <clears throat> the messaging but the visuals that will reinforce that message and we'll be able to come up with really creative ideas that make the space really come to life while still reinforcing the message. Because ultimately that's, with, especially with event branding, we were discussing this earlier, weren't we? If you look at an event, it might, it might, you might have an annual event, but each year the messaging and the theme for that conversation is probably going to be quite different depending you know, what's topical in the industry at that time. So at the end of the day, you... You have an overarching brand that needs to stay consistent over those, you know, four or five years, but the, it needs to be flexible enough for the different stories to come out. 
Um, but when we when we get bought in at that very early level, I think that's when we produce work where people are really like, wow, this is amazing. You know, it's the little details, and it, because everything is there for a reason, it ties in. You've got an experience, and like experience, and part of that yeah. Is, you know, it's it's about crafting that experience, yeah. about what they take away, what what do they remember about that event, an overarching um, feeling. I think that the branding needs to deliver on needs to you know needs to needs to convey and if it doesn't then it doesn't really matter where you know we can put graphics here there and everywhere um yeah if it doesn't all pull together then yeah it just sails over people's heads you know um I mean, what, what sort of things do you think that are like the most important parts of the branding to kind of achieve that level of kind of experience if you use the term branding it's such a a, a big broad yeah. term i suppose what we what we create uh is more of a an identity um and with that i suppose at the very core of it is your logo so for event lab for example um obviously high space is the company Mm. but they have a series of events and it falls under the umbrella of event lab um now one of the things that was became quite clear was that Event Lab hold multiple events. I know you've got the main um, event last show in October. Yeah, yeah, October. But you've also got the Event Lab series, which are in multiple locations. uh, Huge, broad uh, subject matters. Yeah, I mean, like 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 you mentioned, like it's uh, it's the overall brand, but the the overall identity. But the conversation constantly changes. Exactly. Yeah, keeping up with that. So a a a good identity for uh, Event Lab was something that was very flexible, um, and didn't kind of you know pin it down too much so obviously just a very clean logo but then around that you have things like colors typography um photography styles graphical styles identity needs to be polished in an email communication as much as it does in a huge banner exhibition outside uh, the event Um, from the brochure that you get given in your goodie bag to the bag itself it needs to be on point in terms of the, the visual identity, but also the messaging behind it. So the whole thing is a journey from the moment they receive that first invite or awareness mm. of the event, right way through to the event itself, the people that they mm. speak to, but even the takeaway afterwards, when you're thinking about the event, everything that we've produced should be woven through that. One of the events we did a few years ago, it was all about going on a journey. Come with us on this journey, because we're all a little bit uncertain about where we're going, and together we can, you know, we can make it succeed. The the key message at the event was transitioning from uh, traditional desktop software to cloud-based software. Mm. So, and it was trying to um, encourage those, you know, long-time users of this software that actually the cloud is the future. You need to move away from traditional desktop software into the cloud. Um, so, use this journey analogy for that particular uh, campaign. And then there was big airships located around the the spaces itself the entrance kind of felt like a de- departure lounge what was the, what was the building it was really it was a very high building positioned on the thames the very top floor was like crisp white so we really did make it feel like you were genuinely in the clouds you know it was um it was a, yeah it kind of fell into a laugh sat one a little yeah. bit but no, it worked it worked, it really worked well. well yeah so you could see right across london so you put these kind of um like map markers, you know, like a Google map marker. Yeah, like a pen. Yeah, yeah like exactly. cutted vinyl. So they were dotted all around or over the window. So when you looked out from uh, across the horizon, all these pins were kind of covering all of London. They were different sizes. And it was all about sort of, you know, just imagining how many customers are out there for you right now. Yeah, this is your your, your audience is right is on it's the horizon. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the point, you know, when you get involved at that stage, you see the space that's where you can really become creative. Yeah, I guess it sort of shows the importance of an amazing venue. You can exactly, just yeah. set off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it, it was genuinely a really lovely, uh, lovely venue. So yeah. So I guess when you're kind of approaching like the the visual identity of events like that, I mean, how much does the the venue usually kind of influence the, I guess, the experience of it? Well, I think it can have a huge inf- impact. The strength in. Um, uh, you know, getting creatives involved or people that are responsible for the messaging and and, and reinforcing that, getting them involved in at the beginning, means that um, you can utilise that space um, and, and actually make it really work for the for the theme of for the theme. 
Yeah, I mean, thank you for kind of sharing sharing anything about your your process today. We probably just ranted on about. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank thank you very much, guys. Brilliant. Cool. All right. Cheers. Up next is a chat all about work culture and what can be done to make people happier in their work life. Thanks to Bruce Daisley and his new book, The Joy of Work. So today I am joined by Bruce Daisley, the vice president of Twitter for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, So I would say that you are a passionate advocate about improving work culture uh, and that's something you're about to explore in your new book yeah. out in January the joy of work what kind of set you on this road yeah, I've been lucky that probably my first proper job I got my first proper job <laughs> by I'd spent a year unemployed in Birmingham after leaving university and uh, and I drew a cartoon CV and I sent it off and I ended up working sort of an offshoot of Capital Radio but um, it was this chaotic but delightful place to work it was like it was people used to stay till late in the evenings it was um, it was called the Faulty Towers of Media at one stage. <laughs> so it's, a lot of people, a lot of things went uh, wrong there. But it had this really enduring uh, connection between everyone who worked there. And I was really interested when I then went on to work at other businesses that may be better resourced and better organised, how they lacked that, that mojo, they lacked that sort of magic. And so I was really interested how that worked. I went on to work at Google, I I then went to to work at Twitter, and I was fortunate that people complimented me, saying that the teams I worked in seemed um, energised, hardworking, passionate. And and so I made the the fundamental mistake of believing that I was responsible for that. And a couple of years ago, (coughs) maybe when things were sort of slightly less... um, uh, energized mm. I, I suddenly realized I don't really know what I'm doing here and so I've spent the last two years really studying psychology neuroscience a lot of the things that make teams work and the thing that's interesting for me is or the, the thing that really sort of hit me as a, a massive revelation is that guys loads of people have done research about work and they're doing and their conclusions are completely opposite to what we're doing in offices so that was it. I was like, I'd sat there thinking, searching through Amazon, thinking, where's the book on this? Where's the book telling anyone that that we're, we're doing, doing a lot of things that are completely wrong? And because there wasn't a book, um, I set about trying to put that right, really. I mean, you've done so much on the subject. Obviously, you've, you've given talks. You've, you've written your eight-point manifesto on, on the subject. Um so I guess what's the kind of what I guess what's the at the aim now with with the book? Yeah, I mean, so, so I did an eight point manifesto with a a good friend of mine, Sue Todd, who is a CEO, CEO of, a, of a magazine business, and we sort of created this manifesto, which expressly was free. It was like the eight ways to improve the way you're working, very much for the intention that you know. Hopefully, people will say these are wrong, but we love two of them, and they would remix and re-edit them. And when we put that out there, and you can find that by searching New Work Manifesto, but when we put that out there, people contacted us from police forces, teachers, nurses, uh, offices, contacted us saying, we love this, can we use it? And so it was just a, a really interesting take on the, the way that work was evolving. And from there, I thought, okay, Really with, with the intention, again, you know, maybe one person in the team buys this book and rips out pages and hands one of the suggestions round or photocopies it. Probably the publisher wouldn't invite me to say that. But, you know, subverts it and, and somehow uses this to energise their own team. I'm really convinced that the best companies and the best teams I've worked in haven't always been... The, the culture hasn't been the creation of a boss... A boss hasn't sat there and said the culture will be like this. Culture is like this really weird dynamic thing that sort of self-generates and is a mix of all the people who work there and then a mix of what people get away with. It's sort of there's, there's a load of things that go into culture, but I'm convinced that the people who can change culture aren't the bosses, but are one or two really passionate people in the ranks of an organisation. So for me, this book is for someone maybe in their 20s, maybe in their first or second job, who is really inspired to change the dysfunction and the chaos that they see around them. That, that's, such, that's such an interesting viewpoint because we've had a couple of speakers on who have been who've been very focused on the leadership and that kind of leadership aspect. So it's really, really interesting to hear that you kind of think that perhaps it should come from 
you know, sort of outside the kind of the leadership bubble yeah. that should come you know, from. There's a, there's a big thing in literature, like um, in, in, in sort of management literature in the last few years. And it's like, th- and it's reflected actually in the films that we watch. And it's this idea of the chosen one narrative. So, you know, you know, this mm. thing now that in the last decade, the, the last 15 years, there's been so many film plots that are about the chosen one coming along. And whether it's the Hunger Games or the Lord of the Rings or, you know, there's often one single person. And weirdly, management literature is as existed along the sides of that. So if you go into the, those sort of W.H. Smith shelves, mm. occasionally if you're feeling good, you'll look at the, the business books there. And you see those books, and they're all about the commanding power of great leaders. And in truth, that sort of breeds a, a sort of narcissism, a sort of egotism, that someone believes, I'm going to read this book on my flight, and then I'm going to solve my business's problems. And the truth is, work doesn't work like that. You know, I talk a little bit in the in the book about... Uh, one of the heinous feats of ego that Steve Jobs did. And um, and we, we convince ourselves that we want to emulate these sort of iconic and, and uh, sort of haloed figures. And the truth is most businesses are going to get better, not by one chosen person, but by a couple of motivated agitators, activists, people within a company mm. thinking... You know, I've got a bit of evidence. I've got a TED talk to use on our away day. Let's see what we can change. Interesting. So it's it's uh, it's up to everyone to buy the book, not just <laughs> yeah, but, you know, buy it, share yeah. it, rip it. You know, I'm I'm convinced people don't finish books. So the reason why I did it into thirty changes is I thought you know there's one of them which is about the power of laughter at work. And it seems incredibly frivolous. I mean, mm. everyone thinks laughter is frivolous. If you look at scientific papers, I think there's somewhere in the region of 70,000 papers about stress and anxiety. And there's less than 100 scientifically reviewed papers on laughter. Why? Because scientists are scared to, to study laughter. But when you look at the impact of laughter, it tends to make us more closely bonded with others. It, it uh, activates uh, the sort of pleasure hormone in our body. It makes us more creative. Laughter is like this. Ma- laughter and sleep are like the under-celebrated secret ingredients of a happy life. But some, for some reason, when we're at work, especially when we're missing targets or things aren't going well, hmm. people sit there and they say. Now's not the time for laughter. It's like the most <laughs> fundamental misdirection. So when we're in a group with people and we laugh, it signals that everything here is safe. There was a really interesting thing that James Comey said in his book last year about uh, Donald Trump firing him. He mm. said, you know, I've worked with George W. Bush, I've worked with Barack Obama, and they, they were very accomplished at using laughter to warm a room, to make people feel safe, to, to make it feel like people could speak up. He said, Donald Trump never laughs. He said, I've searched YouTube. Donald Trump never laughs. That's what I really wanted to ask you. How do you create laughter in a team? Sort of. Yeah. Is it a case of going with your colleagues to stand up? Or yeah. How do you bring so, it into so the, the workplace? The, the first thing is that um, Robert Provine, the guy who's probably did, done the, the most comprehensive scientific study of laughter, he says often we laugh at things in an office that aren't actually that funny. So it's the power of connection. He, he calls laughter uh, an impoverished human bird song, right? You know, basically it's the way for us to, to signal that we're together. So anyway, he says that his view is that offices can adopt a laughter-ready approach. You know, you can adopt an environment which is more focused on laughter. My feeling was when I looked at businesses that have been really successful of this, They've introduced something of a social meeting. Mm. So this is a meeting where people appear. Often companies that have these, I met quite a few companies that, that have social meetings, but they often are sort of apologetic. Yeah, we have this meeting once a week where people just stand up and say what they're working on. And, and you know, you find with those things that you can optimise very quickly to try and bring laughter into them. You know, I think it's important to note that there's definitely some people who are better at laughter than others. And trying to force your CEO to to tell gags is probably not the secret of of bringing more laughter to work. But, and I've tried to give loads of evidence in there. As soon as you start looking at it, you go, okay, well, actually, that already is quite funny that we do. Let's give it a bit more centre stage. And it's trying to use laughter as a way to sort of lubricate great and successful teams. Yeah, I think this could all do with a bit more laughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so going through the book, I mean, you, you talk about these themes that kind of recur and you've got re- recharge, you've got sync, you've got buzz. So this idea of human sync. 
I was really fascinated. I, I heard Brian Eno, sort of famous music producer, and you know he's worked with Coldplay, U2, mm. he's worked with some of the, the most iconic, David Bowie, some of the most iconic artists. And I heard him talking about how he'd watched two pensioners on a bus using a soap opera, talking about a soap opera, to discuss a sort of big social issue that they were interested in. And, he, and he, his observation was they're using a piece of culture to create human sync between them. As soon as you start looking into human sync, it's this remarkable thing. So if you see people singing in a choir or people who dance together or people who do sport together, they all seem to uh, develop this connection with each other, which when you measure it, it activates pleasure hormones. It makes them feel more connected to each other. And it has this really powerful quality. So there's definitely something there. It's like the grey matter mm. of, of teams, really. If you can activate sync in teams, you tend to find those teams have got a higher tolerance of you know, adversity. They've got a higher uh, threshold of, of really putting up with stuff. And they're more likely to collaborate with each other. So you, you watch rowers who row in, in sync with each other. They put two groups of rowers next to each other, some who are rowing in sync and they have to be coordinated, some that are just rowing as hard as they can and not coordinated. The ones who are in sync can take twice the amount of pain. That's an indication wow. of how much pleasure there's in their body. They can take twice the amount of pain of the people who weren't in sync. This is like a magical thing. And I'll give you another example of it. I love this example. If you look at couples who um, who operate on a long-distance relationship, so couples who are non-married but they're, they're sort of pursuing a long-term relationship, the ones that survive are the ones that speak to each other on the phone every day, often about trivial things. So it's on the phone. It's, they're not WhatsApping each other, and there's often no reason to phone, right? But that human connection, yeah. that sync, seems to be the magical thing that holds them together. That's really interesting, I mean, right? A, I think that's a great bit of relationship right. advice. That exactly that. So <laughs> not that, sure many people thought they'd be getting like, tonight. So you know, if you said to someone, "What did you talk to her about?" Just told her I'd put the the recycling out. You think that has accomplished nothing? You know, the first thing mm. you'd say is oh, that was a bit of a waste of time. No, you're creating a human sink that actually is making your relationship stronger. So as soon as you know all this science, it becomes to me, wow. Okay, how can any of us use this to create a better and more powerful team dynamic? So you've improved your work culture. You've got you've got sync going. You've got people feeling better. Is there a way to kind of safeguard against that at times of perhaps of high pressure in the company? I mean, a lot of event profs will be working on an event, and so perhaps through the year it's it's going well, but then you get a you hit a crunch period where you're you know suddenly longer hours, more intense, right for an event, and perhaps things you put in place to improve the culture might go out the windows. You just yeah. kind of focus on really kind of hitting everything you need to get done. Do you think there's a kind of way to safeguard? Yeah, very much so. And I think, you know, for me, it was, um, it's following the mantra, Chris Hoy said that this was the mantra of the, the British cycling team. So forgive the sports metaphor, I won't use another one, but he said, uh, he said the mantra of the British cycling team was never stand when you can sit, never sit when you can lie down. And what he meant was, conserve your energy because there's going to be very, very high demands on it. Mm. And I think, you know, the events business is is more aware of, of that than anything else. And one of the things that's a classic mistake is to think, I'm working really hard and I'm just going to carry on working. And it, it seems counterintuitive to us to step away from our work and just to take a break. But the one of the things that's this, the most compelling evidence for is the rejuvenating power of breaks. So... Even if you just say to yourself, I know we're slammed this week, but all I'm going to do is I'm going to step away from my desk for 30 minutes. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go walk down to the park, walk around the park with a coffee, come back. It seems when you've got hundreds of people phoning you, when you've got events, you know, emails coming in, you're chasing someone's deck for the, the slides, you know, all those things. The idea of taking a break feels completely irrational. But what you find is that by taking a break, it re-energizes your energy. You get more done in those times afterwards. And I think that's, this is why I say to people, you know, try some of these things out. That I chatted to someone who was an events manager in the book and she, uh, she, she actually went on to write a, a book about taking lunch breaks, gone for lunch. It was called by Laura Archer and her, her realisation was, firstly, that taking a lunch break every day adds up to another six weeks vacation holiday a year. So, like, it's not insubstantial. Uh, but she said she was finding work was 
uh, was feeling oppressive, mm. overwhelming. She said, actually, really interesting illustration. She said when she didn't take a lunch break, even just 30 minutes, she used to spend her weekends searching holidays. She used to spend her time imagining going to work in another job. She said as soon as she instigated just a daily pause, and she didn't do it every day. She would do it three or four days a week. But um, by instituting, instituting a daily pause, she said she stopped searching for holidays and she realised why she loved her job again. I think that message of just taking moments to recharge is something we're hearing again and again. Yeah. I think it's something that yeah people need to listen to. Yeah. yeah so the book comes out in January. Yeah. Comes How... out on Blue Monday on January. You know that most miserable <laughs> day timing. of the year? I thought this could be our salvation. So, how, I mean, how how do you hope that, you know, because you see work culture, how do you hope it changes going into, into 2019? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's a burnout epidemic going on and, and we've been presented with this horrible deal over the last uh, few years that people are telling us we need to work till we're 70. Work is feeling more unsustainable than ever before. You know, the tragedy of modern work is that 60% of people in the UK say they feel lonely at work. I mean, this work was meant to be the coming together of creative minds, of, of sort of creating something positive. And, you know, even though none of us think we're creative, anyone in, in the, the event professional space, they're all creative. They're all trying to think of cleverer ways to do things. So trying to, to crack those things and understand it, creativity is the most important thing. But if we're in a state of exhaustion, if we're in a state of being run down, then it's at the enemy of that. We're so connected to our phones now. I was wondering if you thought that whether kind of social media has any impact on work culture, whether it's kind of as a distraction at work or whether it's even as a catalyst to get a work culture changed. Yeah. So, I mean, look, you know, the, I think the, one of the first things is uh, any sort of interruption, whether it's I work at a social media company. So whether it's from social media or whether it's from, you know, pings on your computer, any sort of inf- interruption is the enemy of concentration. And I think the thing we're learning more and more is the, there's something called an attention residue effect. So the more you transition between different tasks, the more those little ta- the, the things stay in your mind. If you want to get something hard done, often you have to concentrate on it. You know, it's sort of difficult, but you have to you have to commit yourselves and focus on it. So I think the the more that we can try and reduce the amount of interruptions, probably the single best hack that I always tell people about is turning notifications off on their phone. People who turn their notifications off say, you know what, that gave me sort of a bit of headspace. It gave me the freedom to really immerse myself in things. Okay, we can yeah. all sort of neg- renegotiate the terms of our of our connectivity far more than we think. Even that monster of a boss can be persuaded that if you need to finish a document or you need to just escape, normally you can. they can be persuaded that you need a bit of time offline. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It's been a really illuminating talk. Thank you. I'm so, I'm so flattered to be asked. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about Bruce's book, The Joy of Work, check out the podcast description. Now, sadly, this is the last episode of the year, but we will be returning in 2019 for more exciting events discussion. Heading into next year, Event Lab will be hosting its first event of the year in February, cost-effective ways to personalise the live event and surprise your audience. To attend, you can register your interest on eventlab.online now. As always, you can find links to everything mentioned in the episode in the show notes below. If you enjoy the show make sure to rate us on itunes or your podcast app of choice if you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com finally you can follow all that we do on twitter and instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online so all that's left to say is have a merry christmas and a happy new year <laughs>